The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Innovating Innovation with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in your company's future and help your organization move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is an exciting day for us here at SAP Game Changers Radio. We're introducing a brand new series, 13 weeks. It's called Innovating Innovation with Game Changers. And if you haven't gotten the message from that title, we're going to be talking about the game-changing aspects of innovation. It's a big word, bigger than you think. We're going to have 13 shows spread out on alternate Thursdays. We're sharing this time slot, in case you're curious, with our other series, Future of Business with Game Changers, which is in Season 2, and we hope to welcome Season 1 of Innovating Innovation back if this goes really well. I want to do a shout-out quickly to Michel Serrier. I hope I'm doing the French justice to that, who is the sponsor and owns the calendar for this show. Michel, I see you on Twitter and delightful to have you. So now let me start it as though I was starting the show for real. Welcome, 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 and if you want to run with the Game Changers, you are in the right place. The buzz today? Innovation. What else? So let me get started. Is your company so consumed with profitability and revenue optimization tasks that you're neglecting to nurture the customer connection? Ah, more important, are you forgetting to involve your customers in your product or service innovation journey? That's what we're going to focus on. Don't feel so badly. Co-creation with an external community is a newer discipline. Guess what? It has its own requirements, clarity, creativity, continuity, and techniques like design thinking, I know you've heard of that, can be helpful. I have a hint for you when I said don't feel badly. Startups do this more naturally than large companies. So if you're in a large company... It's a learning curve. We're going to help you with that. Wouldn't you love to know the collaboration points and the mechanisms that can help you develop and foster meaningful, sustainable innovation relationships with your customers? I know the answer is yes. So listen up. Our topic today is innovating with, at, and for customers, the key ingredients. I have a great panel. They're calling from all over the world. We've got one in the UK, one in Germany, one in Switzerland, a marvelous panel of global insights and global thought leadership. So let me get started. First up on the panel, he's no stranger to SAP Game Changers Radio. It's Jeremy Cox, Principal Analyst at Ovum, and Jeremy sent me the following quote. Smart companies engineer serendipity into their organizations. I love that word. Serendipity into their organizations, whereas the majority pay lip service to innovation, which is not such a good thing. Jeremy Cox, how are you today? Very well, thank you, Bonnie. Thanks for joining us. This is an exciting day, a brand new series, and you're the first speaker in the brand new series. So that should be quite an honor to you. Are you excited, Jeremy? 
<laughs> I am excited and honored at the same time. Thank you. <laughs> Wonderful. So talk to me about your quote. I, I'm going to tell our listeners we have a slight delay on Jeremy's line. So he is there and speaking with us, but you're just going to hear a couple seconds in between. So, Jeremy, talk to me about your quote, please. Okay. Well, um, I've been looking into what it takes for an organization to remain relevant to its customers. And, and one of the critical ad- attributes is the ability to innovate continuously. So I think at the moment, uh, change is happening at, a, at, a, at, a, at a, an accelerating rate um, and timescales are becoming ever more compressed. And, and what a, a lot of organizations are trying to do is to develop um, better ways of connecting with their customers. Now, that's absolutely great. However, I maintain that uh, um, that in itself is insufficient uh, to remain relevant. Uh, so the ability to continuously innovate has to be something that is right up there at the top of the, uh, the CEO agenda. Jeremy, my question to you is if we're continuously innovating, when does it become a standard or a practice or a, a normal course of business if we're continually innovating? Does the innovation need to be changed on a continual ongoing basis or can you just say, yes, this is it. We've worked on it. We've proven it. And now we can just sit and enjoy it and work on it for a little while. And then maybe in six months, we'll get to another innovation. Is there a stop start to this process or is it a flow all the time? What are your thoughts? It's, it's definitely a flow all the time. And, and, uh, uh, the research that I've been uh, doing over the last couple of years is trying to figure out how do um, enterprises, especially the larger ones, um, succeed at uh, being able to innovate on a continuous basis and, and what, what sort of attributes do they have. Um, and fundamentally, uh, what I find is that um, innovation becomes everybody's business within the organization mm-hmm. um, as opposed to it being something locked in a in, a, in an R&D silo, um, hidden away from everyone. And then a couple of years hence, you know, some product is, is thrown out on, on, on the market. But one of, the, one of the, 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 uh, the challenges, I think, is it's actually changing the culture of, of, of organizations to, to encourage innovation, if you like, to encourage serendipity and make it happen more often. Um, and that, you know, that's, that's definitely the, the challenge of leadership, I think. Thank you, Jeremy. Great start to our conversation, and thanks for saying that it's not locked up in R&D. Very important that it sounds like it needs to become part of the company's culture in any company. Let's go to our second panelist today, welcoming Paul Hobcraft. He's an innovation transformation advisor. That's a good combination. And he sent me the following quote from a lady named Mary Brown, who lived from 1891 to 1971. Never heard of her? Well, Brown has an E on the end. She was the first American female professional professional tennis player. Very interesting quote. She said, preconceived notions are the locks on the door to wisdom. That's a wow. Paul Hobcraft, how are you today? Bonnie, I'm fine. And say hi to Jeremy, hi to Mark, and also a friendly hello to everybody else. Thank you very much. Paul, love the quote. Where did you find it? And relate it to our topic, please. Ah, there's one of those funny things. On the day that Michelle asked me if I'd like to join this uh, session. Up popped this quote from um, Gaping Void, which brings up some quotes every day. And I thought, this is serendipity. This has got to be the one I use because I thought it was so good. And let me explain why I think it's so good to what we're talking about. 
Um, I think we're all today just facing such battles to manage data information that comes from all of this. We're just grappling to understand the knowledge it all contains. What I think we have to do is unlock these insights, and these come really from seeking out wisdom. Others will have that experience. They'll have the insights and will be coming together and can generate that piece of wisdom. So in sharing, we've got a much better chance of unlocking, and unlocking, we get towards wisdom. And collaboration and co-creation helps you unlock all that data and information. We tend to form our own opinions, and that often excludes us from seeing the great possibilities by sharing and working with others. I think we must unlock our own mindset and open up to alternatives that must generate real breakthroughs with others. We must open up, we must be honest, and we must exchange freely. So I just love that quote. I love it too. And, and my question to you, Paul, is when we say preconceived notions, when people are doing a job over and over again, they think they know, well, what do we call them, best practices? Is that the antithesis of innovation? I, I like that question, actually. Is what we call best practices, are those the, the enemy of innovation? Because we get stuck, we get set, we lock it up. Oh, I'm just going to follow best practices. What's your thought, Paul? I'm anti-best practices in every possible way except to give you a good starting point. I really do think you've got to learn by your own experiences. You've got to learn to do your own uh, failures and run your own pilots and to get it, you know, get yourself understanding, you know, find your own energies, find your own ideas that relate to where you are and where you need to go. I, I think... We keep falling back onto best practices. There are other people's mm -hmm. best practices. And in my opinion, they're not the practices that are going to help you. They are other people's practices. And by the time you catch up with them, they're already ahead. So what you need is you need mm -hmm. to think about emerging practices. It's far better. It's a far better place to be for you and your own journey to actually undertake and, and, and go forward. Thank you. Thanks for answering my question. I appreciate that. I, I like the way that came out because I think we hit on a good point there. And let's round out the panel with Mark Dietrich, an innovation consultant in the SAP Global Services Innovation Team. We have a lot of innovation popping up there. Mark said the following quote from an anonymous software developer. Ooh. And the quote is, I hope I do this with the right accent. Ta-da! This is our prototype. Mark Dietrich, I have to smile. Great quote. Do we know who Mr. or Mrs. Anonymous is? And tell me about this quote. Welcome, Mark. How are you today? Yes, hello, everybody. I'm very excited. I say hello to everyone from Bavaria. We are close to the Oktoberfest here, and the sun is shining, and wow, I'm on radio, so I'm, I'm really excited. <laughs> Actually, I, I can instantly reveal um, this or answer this question. I, I basically quoted myself. Yeah, so um, ah! <laughs> it, it's not because I'm so famous or I'm so smart. It was just easier for me because I'm not a good reader when it comes to book I read but I cannot really remember what people said so it, it was easier for me to quote myself and I also thought there is a pretty insightful story to tell about this because I in this story goes back to my earlier days when I did software development at a mid-sized company and I got the task to develop a new product a new software um, and I asked my manager at that time you know so how much time do I get um, to to create a prototype Mm -hmm. And um, my manager said, you know what, Mark, I give you three months, but then it has to be really perfect. And then so I got a small team um, 
and we went, you know, not into a cellar, but into our room. We, we programmed, we hacked, we, we wrote concepts, and after three months, we opened the door, literally opened the door and said, ta-da-da-da, this customer, <laughs> this is our prototype. And uh, customers looked at us and said, oh, okay, it's, you know what, it's not really what we expected to get. And then we said, oh, one moment, one moment, guys. So we are four guys spending three months each. So that's one year in total mm -hmm. we spent to develop this prototype. You have to like it. Okay, so the situation that happened to us, we got emotionally connected to our product, our idea, our prototype, and we weren't really open for criticism anymore. So that's mm -hmm. why this quote gave me a great learning. When I learned stuff like design thinking and other um, methodologies to drive innovation with and for customers, um, that's why I, I wanted to share this story. Yeah, it's a true story, by the way. I love it. I love that it was a direct quote, and you really had us fooled. Thank you very much, Mark. Uh, I want to do a shout-out to Michelle Serrier, who is tweeting for us. He's capturing your words of wisdom. So, Jeremy, Paul, and Mark, be careful. You might be famous on Twitter any minute now. We're tweeting, and I am retweeting at hashtag SAP Radio. So I have an important question for the three of you. You know what's coming. I hope you have something in mind. I'm looking for a little story here on all of our Game Changers radio shows, which share the Coffee Cup logo. You know that. I ask my panelists the following question. What's in your cup today? What are you drinking? Or what do you wish you were drinking? So we have one of you from Switzerland, one of you in Bavaria, one of you in the UK. I'm looking for amazing beverage stories. So Jeremy Cox, no pressure. You know the drill. Talk to me, Jeremy. What's in your cup right now or after the show? Go ahead. Uh Right, absolutely nothing at the minute. But, but um, when Mark was talking about the uh, the Oktoberfest coming up, I can just picture a great big spine full of uh, fantastic Bavarian beer, and that would be perfect for me right now. Well, I'm sure we can package it up and send it over to you. Mark, you have an order for a Bavarian beer for Jeremy. I hope you'll <laughs> deliver that. Paul Hubcraft, what are you drinking? There has to be something in somebody's cup. Come on, what are you drinking or what do you wish was in that cup? Give me a story. Bonnie, I have two short stories. One is a nostalgia story. When I was living in Asia, in Southeast Asia, in Malaysia and Singapore, when I was traveling all over the countries, you get served up coffee of unbelievable bad taste and also sometimes good taste. You get teas that are just thick, black, and heavy. I got hooked on a drink they had out there called Milo. Now, you may have never heard of Milo. Milo is a, is a chocolate and malt powder drink. And it's just, just a fun, fun drink. I got so hooked on it. Everywhere I went, I was always ordering my Milo because every, nearly every household in, in Malaysia or Singapore has a tin of Milo in their cupboard. So I'm okay. I go into shops. I go into customers. My Milo is there. And what, what I do is I put a spoonful of condensed milk into this sort of drink, pour hot water on, and I've got myself a really good, safe drink to have. So that's my nostalgia story because I can't get it here. It's made Paul, Nestle, can you spell it? Can you spell it for me? I want to put it in the tweet. I'm tweeting it right now. What's Milo, the spelling? M-I-L-O. Okay, and it's a chocolate it, malt powdered drink, right? That's right. And... I'll tell you this, the name got me really going when I started to look at this. It's a famous ancient Greek athlete called Milo of Crotonia. 
after his legendary strength. Now, I'm going to leave that there because I haven't got the legendary strength. Now, my story that I need now, the, the drink I really do need now, is called a corrected coffee. Now, a corrected coffee is rather special to this part of Switzerland, in the Italian part. It's called a coffee corretto. Corretto. Is, it's a coffee, and what you put in it is a grappa. Do you know what a grappa is, Bonnie? I sure do. It's stronger than I can do, and I, I wouldn't be able to host radio if I had one of those, right? I'd be under Correct. the desk. <laughs> that's right. Well, that's what you do. It's, it's a corrected coffee. So, in other words, when you've been under the desk ah. and you want to come out from under the desk, you then say, well, oh, what do I do to just recover? I know I'm going to have a corrected coffee, which is this corretto. And then you just put a dash of grappa into the coffee, or you have it just after it, so you have a quick little rinser of this, and that's it. So there, might that's what I need now, or I'm going to have straight after this show, is I'm going to have wait. my corrected coffee. <laughs> Wait for the grappa after the show. I need all of you right here for the next 52 minutes. And Mark Dietrich, I won't ask you to top that story, but if you want to try, go ahead. What are you drinking today, Mark? <laughs> That's a really mean question because I have to um, – it, it, it gets quite embarrassing when people ask me that. So most people think because I'm out of Bavaria, it's beer, but it's not. And it's not because the cups are too small. In Bavaria, we are used to drink from out of bigger glasses that can cope with at least one liter of, of um, liquid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the thing is, I don't drink coffee. Yeah. I like mm-hmm. tea, but most of the time I have, and now it gets a little bit embarrassing, I have hot chocolate in my, in my um, cup. Oh, cup, don't cup, be embarrassed. I, I adore hot chocolate. What's embarrassing oh. about that? <laughs> Real, real people That's drink not. real hot chocolate, Mark. It's fabulous. And and how do you make the yeah, hot chocolate? Know, most people, most people ask you if you're on site at a project or so. Let's go for a coffee. And I say, oh yeah, okay, let's go. And then, oh, you drink hot chocolate. Why is that? It's the same. They look. That's the same look I get um, when they ask me why don't you eat cheese. You know. So. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you that most coffee places are, are, are offer something like a mocha, which is really hot chocolate with a little bit of, of coffee in it, and that's my favorite drink at, at Starbucks, but that's what I can tell you, so I think that's great. I'm a big fan of hot chocolate. You just keep drinking up. Guess what, panel? You have earned the right to have a break, so you can go sip something. Jeremy, find something to put in your cup. We need you to come back refreshed, because you're going to be opening the 30-minute roundtable we come back. Our topic today to launch this debut of the wonderful new series, Innovate innovation with game changers presented by sap our topic is innovating with at and for customers the key ingredients and our panelists today are jeremy cox at ovum paul hobcraft an innovation transformation advisor and mark dietrich at sap and if you haven't remembered it i'm still bonnie d graham happy to be here hosting this newest series for sap game changers radio don't even think of touching that mouse that app that dial you know the drill we'll be right back after the break brad out. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. 
The pace of innovation is moving faster than ever, and the future of business will be defined by how quickly business leaders adapt to accelerated ongoing change. Factors as diverse as insights from growing volumes of data, the new global pool of talent, resource scarcity, and business networks and supply chains are shaping the definition of future success. Join our experts as they analyze and discuss how business leaders can shape the future of change. Innovating Innovation with Game Changers is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Innovating Innovation with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to Innovating Innovation with Game Changers. Welcome back. Exciting. We're launching the debut of our new series, Innovating Innovation with Game Changers. Already off to a great start in the opening. We're speaking with Jeremy Cox at Ovum, Paul Hobcraft, an innovation transformation advisor. That's a big title. And Mark Dietrich at SAP. Let's get started with our, we're going to probably have about 25, 30 minutes of a roundtable nonstop. So I hope my panelists are putting their seatbelts on. Jeremy Cox at Ovum, you know the drill. I want to start the conversation with you and then we'll have a couple of other conversations threads with our other panelists. Let's kick off with these very provocative statements you sent me before the show, Jeremy. You said to me, most organizations are poor in innovation, but innovation is not just for high-tech industries. It's about doing things differently to meet the needs and rising expectations of customers. And that's the key to our topic today, customers. The needs of customers is the driver. Jeremy Cox, let's go for it. Why don't you dive in and start the topic, please? Okay, well, um, I mean, as you said right at the end there, um, you know, customers is often what, it, what it's all about, and their behaviors are changing all the time. So it doesn't matter what industry you're in, um, we're all going to be affected by those changes in behaviors, the, the different ways they buy, the different ways they, they want to interact with organizations, uh, the way that they, they seek recommendations from their peer groups on social networks, etc. So we're all... We're all uh, you, you know, at, at, at risk of becoming irrelevant if we don't understand those changes and adapt to them and adapt to the right kind of frequency. So whereas traditionally, um, you know, one thinks of high-tech organizations and R&D and, and innovation, but, but actually there's an absolute graveyard of, of former innovators out there. Just think of uh, in the IT industry, companies like uh, Digital Equipment Corporation, Wang, um, you know, these are, these are companies that have meteoric rise and then lost the plot, didn't see their customers. Now, that, that's a, a high-tech uh, example, but, mm-hmm. but um, you know, the same thing is happening right across commerce to a greater or lesser extent. And I think it was uh, Steve Denning of Forbes was saying that, you know, over the last 50 years, the average lifetime of, a, of an organization's collapsed from... 75 years down to about 15. So, 
um, you know, we should all be on our metal and, and figure out how to to uh, to refresh the value that we deliver. The uh, you know to, to match the the new customer behaviours that that are emerging. Jeremy, it sounds like the the culture has to be customer centric. You have to want to do it. You have to be aware. You have to have leadership that says customer rocks, customer rules. We need to pay attention. We can't just. I'm going to go back to my statement I discussed with one of the panelists before. You can't just say, "Well, we're doing well. We're just going to follow best practices. We have enough products. We have enough services. We're just going to keep on same old, same old." So, Paul Hopcraft, why don't you join this part of the conversation? What do you think about what Jeremy just discussed? I was going to take a slightly different tack to Jeremy, but really Mm -hmm. just to reaffirm what he's saying, which is that I was looking the other day at product and product failure, and I came across four quite stunning, well, for me, quite stunning things, uh, and I'd like to just quote a couple of those, if I may. One was from from the PDMA, which was a comment to say that, uh, often new product ideas are not developed and the majority of new products never make it to the market. Consider these two interesting statistics. Number one, new products have a failure rate of 25 to 45%. And two, for every seven new product ideas, about four enter development, one to one and a half are launched and only one succeeds. That's number one statement. Number two statement is, according to Booz & Co., they reckon that 66% of new products fail within two years. Then I even crash it even worse, which is the Dublin company, which is a well-known company, reckons 96% of all innovation fails to return on their cost of capital. And the last one is from another company, which says 1% of new product launches reach 100 million or more in sales revenue in their first never reach 100% million in sales revenue in their first year. Mm. It's just when you think about it, all these failures just point people, you know, people just can't, as Jeremy said, they can't relax, they've got to stay on their metal, they've really got to work it hard, innovation, because if they don't, they've got the, the failure coming from product, they've got the failure coming from their companies, and we have just got to chase this failure out of our system. And for instance, I, I think that I was just looking to see, well, there's about a, a magic five I've come up with that I thought were quite interesting, is why do companies fail? And one of them is because their innovation execution is poor. Mm-hmm. Two, they don't really have great impactful ideas. It's always lots of lots of incremental stuff. They never really push out. They never feel confident enough to go out there and be a little bit more radical, a little bit more sort of disruptive to the market. They lack a lot of alignment um, within themselves. They don't relate to their strategy. They don't relate to each other within the organization. Then the fourth and fifth one is portfolio is they place a lot of bad bets on a lot of bad products. And the last Mm -hmm. one is, and I think this is a really important one when it comes to the reason why we have a lot of failures, is Product development remains often ego-driven. In other words, it becomes Uh, the person pushing for it as against the the fact that the market needs it. Paul, great points. I, I want to ask you, whose responsibility is it to change this mindset that of this this mindset that it gets you stuck? Where does that come from? Top leadership? Does it come from recruiting the best people with that innovation DNA, if you will? Where does it come from? How do you solve what you've talked about is really a problem? 
It is a big problem, and I don't think there's one sort of answer to it. Of course, it's, it's, of course it's leadership. But to be mm-hmm. honest, I think it's we don't have good systems, we don't have good structures, we don't have good processes around us in innovation. They're, a lot, they're too much ad hoc. They're not a, you know, we're not able to repeat a lot of our systems and our structures. The people, we don't train enough. So until we get, in my opinion, until we get at the equivalent of a, of a, a sort of uh, a, a process in organizations that they can relate to, an innovation process that, that uh, sets it up and structures it, I think we're going to continually have problems of not being able to innovate in ways that I think uh, companies really need to do. Thank you for your insights, Paul. Mark Dietrich, I know you have a lot to say on this. Why don't you join us? What do you think? <laughs> yeah, so um, I very often hear the, the term best practice and there is people asking for, is there a best practice for innovation uh, mm-hmm. and things like that. I mean, we all know as soon as something is a best practice, you can basically copy it and, and repeat it. Yeah? So mm-hmm. it, the value immediately goes down. Um, so, and at the same time for innovation, thinking about a best practice is, is really, really hard and I don't even think there is one. So um, I believe, I strongly believe there is recommendations that you can give. There is ingredients that you can put into a company that kind of builds a fertile ground for innovation. But I also think if you put the same ingredients into different companies, some will have a positive impact and others will have no impact. And I think this a lot ties back to, to the culture on how maybe how customer-oriented we are. I'm looking at the title of the session, which yeah. is with, at, and for customers. And it, these are, with, at, and for are very similar, well, short words, but I think there is a big difference between all of them. So with customers mean, means I basically include my potential customers or thought leaders or extreme users or whatever um, into this, um, product development, whatever our product is, product development cycle. So I want to develop it with them. Um, at customers means I would, I also leave my environment. I'm not doing this in the ivory tower and do a phone call every once a week yeah. with my customers. I want to mm-hmm. learn from them within their environment on what they need, right? And for customers, and this is maybe one of the most important things why I think a lot of innovations fail. I do it for customers. I do it for their personal, mm-hmm. individual success. I'm, and most companies, I think, first comes the business model. So I want to first see the business model and then we squeeze the new product idea like chewing gum into this new business model. And I think once you um, narrow your perspective regarding an idea, a product, into a business model-related uh, conversation, your solution space becomes really small. And I even think the, the, the likeliness to fail uh, gets a lot higher. Great points. I heard somebody in the background uh, commenting or chuckling or agreeing or disagreeing. Jeremy or Paul, you want to comment yeah. on what Mark just talked? Who's that? Well, I, I, think, I think what Mark was saying is absolutely spot on. I love his chewing gum mm-hmm. analogy. And I, think I did too. The UK car industry back in the 70s and um, you know how that collapsed. Um, and, and if you look at the, the cars that were being banged out at the time, clearly they were designed by accountants. Um, you know, the cheapest products, 
bolted together in the cheapest possible way and uh, ugly as, as sin. And I thank goodness that those days are, days are behind us. Now, fast forward to today, we now see a resurgent car industry in the UK, albeit owned by Indians. So <laughs> we've got Jaguar doing extremely well. And, mm-hmm. and, and I think they're taking a leaf out of uh, the BMW book, you know, sort of build quality into uh, the product because, you know, at, at a fundamental level, it, you know, it must be able to do what it says it, it can do. But then sort of put in that sort of luxury piece. So the accountants are a long way uh, away from, from, from that sort of design. Um, so um, I completely agree with uh, what Mark was saying there. And, and this is Paul, and I, I, yes. so, do I, so do I. But I, I, th- I think it just leads us now very nicely into what the difference is between the car industry in the UK some years ago and what it is today, is that the people have learned to collaborate. People have learned to open up their thinking and their minds. They've actually started to learn to co-create. And I think this is what this is all about. This conversation today is leading towards this collaboration collaboration and and co-creation because the way I think we can learn to repeat the way we can avoid to most probably uh, step on the chewing gum and have it always marked on us is is simply by getting out of our own building and getting to Mm -hmm. understand what the marketplace is wanting what our customers are needing getting alongside our customers and working through all the issues that uh, they are trying to solve and we are also wanting to resolve on their behalf. And I think this whole collaboration and co-creation is the, step, is the way forward. Paul, thank you, and great segue, because I was just looking at some of the notes you sent me, and I know you mentioned there's a book by Guarav Bala called Collaboration and Co-Creation that you reviewed, but I'd like to go a segue diametrically, oh, 180, from talking about the auto industry, past, present, future, to Legos. Everybody remembers Legos. They're not just for kids anymore, though. And you mentioned to me in your notes, Paul Hobcraft, you said there's a Sloan review in spring 2012, not that long ago, that conducted a research program examining community development and user innovation among, wait for it, wait for it, Mark, this is a ta-da-da-da moment, Lego fans about Lego's experiences and practices working with external communities. And Paul, I'd like you to elaborate, expand on this. How successful are they? Lego fans are a user group. It counts. Lego's a business. It counts, right? So how do they work with co-creating with their fans, their customers? Paul, why don't you start us with this? Yeah, by all means. Um, firstly, we're dealing here with obviously a business to consumer, um, which is different from business to business. I think business to business co-creation and collaboration is a lot tougher and a lot harder. Um, well, both are pretty hard. Now, what Lego are is an outstanding example of how they co-created with mm-hmm. a, a community. They took the adult community and then sort of started to ask questions of how, how they saw Lego, how they could use Lego, uh, how they could sort of uh, improve on what Lego was offering. And they built that into a complete platform. And uh, the adults, you know, they thought, well, maybe adults will help their kids. The adults sort of uh, started to build just amazing Lego designs. 
um, for other adults and also for the, for the kids. But of course, what Lego as a company got was an enormous amount of feedback, uh, you know, ideas and generations of ways to see things and ways to develop things, and it spawns into now a massive amount of their their business. And but the thing that I think is important here is what they learned and what the Salon Review did. Um, they looked to say, well, you know, we've got the practices. Let's understand what has come out of this. And more important, when you do collaborate and when you do co-create, is to establish some core principles of how you're going to interact with your, with your users, with your clients, with whoever it is. So, uh, you know, and they, they had about five very simple ones, which is just be clear about rules and expectations. So secondly, ensure that both sides get a, a win-win out of this. Thirdly, you've got to always recognize that you're not an insider if you're a collaborator on the outside. So don't get caught up in it. Uh, stay independent. Stay what you are. Um, and, and keep sort of feeding into, in, into the sort of the experts uh, what you feel and what you do and, it, and all the creativity, all that passion, all those ideas and let them figure it out in, in the best way. Don't try and tell them how to figure out how to write a piece of software or how to build um, a particular Lego block or something. And also to recognize that, of course, when you're opening up to a large consumer group, you've got to expect that one size does not fit all. In other words, there's mm -hmm. going to be lots of different people, lots of different ways they want to do things. And just be with them. Be open as possible. In other words, when you screw up, you tell them you screwed up. When they've screwed up, you tell them they've screwed up. Because mm -hmm. that's the way it, trust develops. And once you've got trust, once you've got confidence, you get energy. And once you've got the energy, you then begin to get those ideas flowing. And that, I think, is an interesting one. So I think Lego is a very, very good, let's say, case study if, if people wanted to look at the company um, because I think it does some very good uh, core principles and it tells a very good story of how it actually got to that point and how many years it took them to get to that point. Great example, Paul. really appreciate it. Mark, do you own Legos? Do you play with Legos? What's your thought on this as a great case study of co-creation with customers <laughs> and paying attention to their needs, even if it's just Legos? Oh, somebody's going to kill me for that, just Legos. I, I withdraw that. Strike that from the record. Mark Dietrich, talk to me. <laughs> Actually, I love the Lego bricks. I, I I have a lot of them in my cellar. I'm, I think I'm not allowed to play with them because I, people <laughs> tell me I'm uh, I'm too old. Yeah, but now uh -huh. I have a great opportunity. I have a ten year old now, a uh, ten ten weeks old now, so a little son, and I'm also looking forward uh, to the time he he loves to play with this stuff. And I remember um, Lego had some severe challenges to overcome and almost. We almost lost Lego as a as a company and as a brand, as a toy. I, I remember there were some really severe stuff going on in the market. But they were re well, they were again looking at who are our customers, who's playing with mm -hmm. that stuff. And I think they made some really phenomenal found some phenomenal insights on how their consumer behavior, skills and so on changed. So they saw that they can address a broader range, a wider range of consumers with um, different ages. So today, I mean, mm -hmm. even like 20, 30, 40-year-olds play with um, Lego in combination with computers or Arduino. So there is new things that you can do with this stuff. At the same time, I think there was a new manager that 
reduced the number of legal blocks that were available from, I think it was 14,000 to 7,000. He, he oh. cut basically half the different pieces and said, you know, we need to focus, focus, focus and not, you know, have bricks for every, every single um, purpose. And that brought Lego also back on track. Um, I have a Lego, uh, old stuff and new stuff. I, I even have one NXT, if you, if you know that one. I love how people and kids can express um, um, ideas and inspirations and, and stuff like that in, in these bricks. And, and then basically, you know, um, present it to, to, to others, to parents, to other kids. And, and, and so I remember myself when I, when I built something, I thought it's great. And my parents said, oh, okay, what is that? And I, I, I was able to explain what it is and to make my parents understand mm-hmm. my thinking behind these blocks. Wonderful also, stories. Yeah, go ahead. Awesome. Also, Marcus, Paul, um, it's, it's a wonderful um, one to sort of throw into the middle of a workshop. Um, just put a pile of bricks and start saying to people, just build something. You know, and mm-hmm. it, it breaks the sort of where people are, are at that moment of time. They get a little bit creative. They start sort of putting it all together. Uh, they all start laughing at each other's these crazy designs. Uh, and suddenly it becomes a unifying uh, way of, of bringing some, sometimes a workshop to life. And then people mm-hmm. continue to go back and refer to it. And uh, throughout the course of the day, um, when you've got a ton of bricks, you can actually use those bricks uh, in all sorts of different ways. And it gets to be quite fun and it, entertaining and, and creative uh, so they also got a great value when, when you build in obviously creativity and imagination workshops I'm going to ask my kids exactly. to send me I, Legos I for of, my birthday go ahead <laughs> go ahead no, uh, that was exactly what I wanted to say so today since about three years I'm doing design thinking workshops and one a part of a design thinking workshop mm-hmm. is a, a phase called prototyping you have only 30 to 45 minutes to create a prototype for a great idea but you're not allowed to use fancy technology. You're not allowed to use PowerPoint or software system, any kind of mock-up tools or so. So you use plain maybe Lego blocks or cardboard or anything that's available. In the beginning, everybody thinks, okay, how should I create a prototype with cardboard or Lego blocks? But the funny thing is, and this is what I, what I saw throughout the three years in all kinds of regions in the world, you can prototype everything, a new software product, a new concept, a new uh, life cycle, a new process. You can do it with Lego blocks and so on. And, it's, and Paul, you said it, it, it's great fun. People love it. And I said it in the beginning, um, people tell me I'm too old to play with Lego blocks. I see mm-hmm. people that are 50 or 60 years old in these workshops playing with Lego blocks. And man, they have great fun. And they have I great bet. outcomes too. You know, I bet they do. Think with your hands. I love the term "think with your hands," and that's what what Lego enables us to do. I, I, I can only it. say one other thing, uh, Bonnie, yes. if I may, and that is, yeah. uh, you know, he's got he's got a ten ten week old uh, uh, son. He's got to get him started fairly early, don't you think? I, th- I think he has to co-create and innovate and all that. I yeah. was saying uh, saying a moment ago, I'm going to ask my kids to send me a box of Legos for my birthday in a couple of weeks instead of chocolates. I'd, I'd rather rather do that. I think that's a great idea. Wait till I tell them that. Uh, Jeremy Cox, I want to get you in briefly on this conversation before I go to something that Mark sent me. We're probably going to skip the break, guys. We're probably just going to go straight through to the predictions round because this is just too much fun to stop. But Jeremy Cox, thoughts about Legos? Do you play them? Do you own them? What do you think about that? Business model thoughts. I think it's. Uh, I 
Oh, it's, it's many years since I had the uh, the pleasure of playing with uh, with Lego. Um, although I've seen generations since who uh, who still find it absolutely enthralling because they can exercise their imagination and build pretty much anything they want. Um, but I think conceptually, uh, you know, breaking things down into into um, simple building blocks that you can you know, re- re- reconfigure uh, rapidly and, and quickly. And I think maybe even the software industry is beginning to move down that route as well. Um, so instead of things taking you know, years and years to develop, um, the cycle times are, are getting faster and faster. And I'm, sh- I'm sure that sort of modular approach um, will work, uh, you know, uh, in, in a variety of different industries. So uh, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I think the, the Lego example is, is, is a superb one. It's a great one, and I think it's a, an example of innovations for creativity. The idea of putting grown people—I use that—I uh, use that with quotes around it. Grown-ups in a room and saying, "Hey, let's start building something," and just watching the kid in them come out—and that would be fresh ideas and mm. no best practices whatsoever. Leave your best practices at the door, damn it! Just come in and think like a kid, play, and let's see the creativity that comes out. I want to—we're uh, probably going to skip the break, Brad. I think we're we're going to. Too, too strong on this. I want to bring up some other talking points, a slightly different focus here. Back to our topic. Mark Dietrich, you sent me the following. You say, the biggest difference between startups and large companies in this context, and I mentioned that in my intro, is that startups have no processes to involve consumers into their product development. They just do it. So that's a good thing. And then you give me the following two mantras. You say, startup people act according to, with, at, and for customers because they don't know any better. But people in bigger companies sometimes act like, okay, everybody listen to this, for my bonus, for my manager, to secure my job, for the numbers. Oh, yeah, of course, also for the customer, ta-da-da-da. Mark Dietrich, talk to me. This is great stuff. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so maybe that's an experience I also made myself. So I ran my own business for 10 years I joined a mid-sized company and I joined uh, bigger companies and I see that, that there is this tendency. So when you're running your own business, you are, you have to really believe in your idea and you want to show it to people. You want to learn from them and, you know, just create the best product and, and thing that you can, you can make to make them successful. And then if someone even pays you, you say, wow, I even earned some money with it. You know, it's so it's the other way around. You, you want to create value. And then if you get something back, you're even surprised in the beginning. Um, so that's maybe a little bit extreme. On the other hand, if you, if you look at big companies, I, I was part of uh, consulting five years and I saw big companies. So if you have an idea, the first question is, what's the business case? Mm-hmm. And honestly, <laughs> I talk to a lot of people that say, you know what, I can, I can create any business case, any, with any numbers, just tell me what, what numbers do they need, I create the business case. So the question about a business case, I mean, I understand it from an economical point of view that at some point of time we want to understand is it worth the investment, but... How should I know? How should I know if I have an idea if someone in Asia would buy it? How should I know? I don't even know my customer in Asia. So I, I, I need to have time to investigate. And I think exactly this investigation is what startups do. They want to understand 
what is it that my consumers and customers really need before they think, oh my God, in, in two months I'm running out of money. Because they, you know, they say, I make my living maybe a second job or so, pay my, pay my bills, but I want to really make that idea real. Um, so I think that that's a, a very big difference between these company, companies and, and smaller and bigger companies. I would really love to hear something um, from, from the other guys. What do you think? I want to hear too. Jeremy Cox, why don't you go? And by the way, we have... We have a few minutes left before we have to go to predictions. So, Jeremy first, then Paul, and then we're going to go to our crystal ball. Go ahead, Jeremy, please. Okay. okay looking at it from the, from the, from the big organization, um, usually they're, they're, they're having to report quarterly figures. Uh, I mean, the whole, the whole organization tends to be what VJ uh, um, Govindarajan, I can never pronounce his name, uh, he, he, he's writing about this. He talks about the, the performance engines. It's all about efficiency. It's all about optimization. And it's all about getting things done. It's about predictability, trying to, 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 to build predictability into the business. Well, the outside world is unpredictable, and it's becoming more and more unpredictable. So, so that kind of doesn't work. So this is why I think the, the, cultural, the cultural aspects of it are so incredibly important. And... Uh, Jeffrey Moore, um, who's written loads of uh, books on, you know, crossing the chasm, etc. But one of his recent ones, uh, Escape Velocity, says that most of these large organisations are victim of the the annual planning. You know, so last year's plan um, tends to sort of drive the logic of of next year's plan. So usually it'll be something like last year plus ten percent or minus five mm-hmm. percent on costs or whatever. You know, it's that kind of rationale. And the trouble with that is. You know, where new opportunities do emerge, um, they don't get properly resourced. So, so they, uh, you know, things wither on the vine um, almost before they've, they've had a chance to, to come to, to fruition. And, of course, innovation is about unpredictability, especially, um, you know, disruptive innovation. So there's no business case for it. Um, it, it there is a leap of faith that needs to uh, take place. Um, but, it, you know, so um, I think... I think the, the, the cultural aspect, and again, this always comes back to the leadership of the organization, mm-hmm. really has to be addressed. And, and people need space to innovate and also be encouraged to, to come forward with ideas. So, I mean, I think of organizations like um, Swiss Post, for instance. Um, now, here's an organization that uh, um, is probably being disrupted or an industry that's being disrupted uh, probably more than a lot um, by you know, the Amazons of the world and, and um, you know, all these fantastic logistics companies, uh, etc. They've thrown open innovation to their 60,000 employees. Um, mm-hmm. They're all encouraged to, to, to give the benefit of their, their thoughts, their perspectives, etc. So that comes in, you know, so there's a huge pot of ideas that eventually get sorted down and, and sifted and, and, and worked through until eventually um, out pops the other end, um, things that are completely different for the organization to do. I, I I think the other thing is that that's all, that's all driven by the leadership of the organization. Put, Guess what, gentlemen, I want, I want to move it. into the predictions. We have to move into the predictions because we're ending in six and a half minutes. So, oh, Jeremy... Right. Jeremy, why don't you give me your top two predictions? Take a minute, then we'll have Paul do a wrap-up for two minutes with his predictions, and then Mark. I want to make sure everybody gets a turn. So, Jeremy, give me one minute of predictions, because I think you already started. Go ahead, Jeremy Cox. Okay, two predictions. 
One, um, companies that don't get their heads around innovation can expect a short life. Uh, so that's one prediction. Mm-hmm. And the second is, I think people are opening up to um, co-creation with customers, um, trying to understand things, not just asking the customer what do they want, but actually looking at and you know, observing how the customer does what they're, uh, you know, what they're trying to actually do and then figuring out new ways of enabling them to do that, which are, which are smarter, less painful, cheaper, or whatever it may be. So I think there's an appetite for that. Um, and the more sort of human an organization becomes, I think the, the, the greater the chances of, uh, of uh, you know, picking up those signals. And I think that's, that's, that's going to be a rising trend. Thank you. And Jeremy Cox, quick yes or no answer to the following question. By the year 2020, will more of the big giant, I call them the behemoth companies, will they get the concept of making co-creation with customers, co-innovation with customers, part of their DNA on a regular daily basis? Yes or no, by 2020? Partially. Partially. Okay, that's a provocative. We'll have to do a part two. And let's turn to Paul Hobcraft. Paul, I'll give you exactly two minutes for your predictions. 2020, is the crystal ball clear that far out? Do you want to go farther or nearer? Go ahead. Perfectly, Start. Perfectly clear. Um, I would answer to your question is the answer is yes. Size is not an excuse <laughs> for complacency. And uh, it, it doesn't matter where you are. Um, the, the thing that I think large companies are finally waking up to is they're beginning to invest in their intrapreneurs, their creative souls that are actually on their payrolls. They've got to get a lot more people engaged. They've got to get a lot more people who can feel they are empowered to begin to explore and to develop. And I really do believe uh, companies are starting to do that. Um, I was listening to a conversation of a huge company, and, and the way they were talking about how they were going to get innovative partnerships going, how ecosystems were working, how they were going to bring big data in, how they were going to do moonshots, and how they were going to draw in entrepreneurship tells me that there's a movement afoot because there just has to be. So that's the first thing. Second thing about 2020 is it's quite amazing. In the EU, they've got a thing called Horizon 2020, which is an innovation program funded by the EU. There's a hundred billion U.S. dollars going to go into that program in the next uh, five or six years. I just hope one thing that they learn to collaborate and co-create by that time, and then it's money well spent. Wow, Horizon 2020, never heard of that. I have to tweet about that. Thank you so much, Paul. And Mark Dietrich, last but certainly not least, I can give you exactly two minutes. Take it and use it. Go predictions. <laughs> Thank you, Barney. So <laughs> I look into my crystal uh, ball, and um, it clearly shows one thing. So big companies and social, like like we all know, like LinkedIn and so, and crowdsourcing um, platforms like Kickstarter will merge into something which we cannot define yet. My crystal ball doesn't show how that looks like. But I think the asset huge companies have in terms of sales channels, um, processes, and so on, um, are a main asset. The creativity from uh, social areas and crowdsourcing is important, and people that are willing to invest into products that are not even built, like we have on Kickstarter, will merge into a a community-style um, construct 
which will drive innovation beyond the borders of um, big companies. So that's my, my prediction, because I think with social, we have a reach into a global reach. We can understand profiles, interests, and so on. We can also um, match skills and demands, so we can make it a defined serendipity process, more or less, if you need if you have a problem, uh, the, the, the platform could find the, the solver for you. And so combining all these assets, I think, will bring back a lot more innovation to this world. And I'm really looking forward to that. Wonderful. Exciting. And I have my predictions. I wrote them down. Guess what? This is the end of our week here on the Business Channel. We have done HR Trends on Monday. We did Financial Excellence with Game Changers on Tuesday. Wednesday, I hosted Coffee Break with Game Changers. Here we are with the exciting debut of Innovating Innovation with Game Changers. Next week in this spot, we'll be back with Future of Business. And next Wednesday afternoon, we'll be back with another live edition of the Customer Edge. The week after the Internet of Things, we're innovating radio here on Game Changers. Thank you, Jeremy Cox. Thank you, Paul Hobcraft. Thank you, Mark Dietrich. You were three amazing panelists, and I use that word with advisement. I'm not just throwing it out, but you really get what it's like to be on a live panel discussion. You played great in the sandbox. I can't thank you enough. Big shout-out to Michelle Serrier for sponsoring and giving me the idea for this series and getting everything together. Mark Dietrich, thank you also for helping put the panel together. Brad and the Business Channel team, thanks for getting us on the air. I'm Bonnie D. Graham, and here's my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. Tuck a couple of Legos in just for fun. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. See you next Monday on HR Trends with Game Changers 1 p.m. Eastern. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Innovating Innovation with Game Changers, presented by SAP, the best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join your host, Bonnie D. Graham, on Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.